3D printers are the most powerful machines human beings have ever invented. Is that fact or hype? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. That statement comes from attorney John Hornick, author of a new book called 3D Printing Will Rock the World. He joins me on this episode to talk about the development and promise of 3D printing. We'll hear his views on how the technology stands to revolutionize product design, sweep away traditional manufacturing methods, and put the power of creation into the hands of consumers. We'll discuss which industries stand to be the most affected by 3D printing and whether there are some areas for which the technology isn't a good fit. We'll distinguish between consumer and industrial machines and talk about the progress of each. Finally, we'll tackle the dark side of 3D printing, specifically the potential for creating perfect knockoffs that could undermine the protection of intellectual property. So here is my conversation with John Hornick. John Hornick, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Why do you believe that 3D printing is bringing about what I believe you call the next industrial revolution? Well, I can't take the credit for that. I think there have been a lot of other people who've called it that, including The Economist. But uh, I believe that it is going to lead to a new industrial revolution because it's a fundamentally different way of making things. Instead of having a factory full of machines that Maybe you have 10 or 12 or 15 machines to make a particular part or a particular product. Here you have one machine that can make the entire part in one build. So you're eliminating a lot of machinery. You're eliminating a lot of labor. And when you eliminate a lot of labor, you shift the place from where the part can be made from uh, you know, what we have today is mass production in countries with low labor costs. We, we can shift that to making things closer to where they're needed because there's not as much labor involved. I think people are confused when they hear about 3D printing at this point, though. They either envision machines that are in plants doing this, or they envision like the home printer, where you can print any number of products out on your desktop. And I'm wondering, which of those are we really talking about here? Or is it both or a combination, or what exactly? Well, I'm mostly talking about the industrial side. And you're right, there's a lot of confusion among the public on this point. Most people in the public believe that 3D printers are uh, little machines that make Yoda heads. And that is one type of 3D printing. It's a type called material extrusion. And there are industrial versions of those types of machines as well. But there are about seven basic different types of 3D printing technology. And they range from those uh, extruder type machines that everybody's familiar with to uh, really big machines that make metal parts that cost uh, up to about $5 million. Now, the consumer machines, they are also being used in industry, uh, mostly for designing and for prototyping. Uh, and eventually, probably the technology on the consumer side and on the industrial side will start to come together. But 
Uh, right now, where I see the revolution in industry will come mostly from the, the industrial machines. So which industries do you think are most promising to adopt 3D printing on a large scale first? Well, the ones that are already adopting it on a large scale are automotive, aerospace, and healthcare. And probably where most people will see an effect in their lifetime in the biggest way is in the healthcare field, because there are all kinds of things that are being done there, printing of prosthetics, and it's being used in reconstruction, and there are efforts being made to 3D print organs, and there's tissue that's being 3D printed that can be used for drug testing. So, so we'll start to see big changes and big effects there. But also in the aerospace field, it's, it's really perfect for aerospace because a lot, a lot of requirements in the aerospace field are for high-quality parts, but maybe not a lot of them. Maybe you don't need a million parts. Maybe you need 100 parts or, or a couple of thousand parts because you're only making a small number of engines, for example. So it's perfect for that industry as well. And then in the automotive industry, it's being used mostly for design, for making uh, jigs and fixtures that are used somewhere along the production line. Uh, however, there is uh, some use of it being made uh, for customizing of vehicles as well. So you say that it could be used for making small lots or small runs of particular items in an industrial setting. How long would it take, or at least under current technology, to kind of retool a 3D printer to shift it over to stop making one thing and start making another? Is it that easy just to load in all the elements and you're good to go? Or is there some time involved in turning that machine over for another product? Well, assuming you're using the right kind of machine for whatever kind of part you want to make next, uh, then it's as simple, really, as changing the digital blueprint uh, in the computer. Because the machine will print anything at all, and all it really needs is a digital blueprint to tell it what to print. But the raw materials in the machine will differ from product to product, will they not? Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, there are machines that use polymers. There are machines that use sand, that, that for example, that make molds for casting. There are machines that make metal parts. So, uh, you know, if you're using a, a metal machine, you're only going to be printing parts that are made of metal, and presumably you're going to do a production run that is of the same type of metal that you're using for a part now. You're going to use that same metal in the next part that you build and the next part that you build. But you can change materials, and, and there's also advances being made in making machines that can create alloys on the fly. So you have several different metal inputs, and they can be mixed as the part is being made to create an alloy with different characteristics in different parts of the part. Are there any product quality concerns at this moment in terms of the advance of the technology? Well, yes, there are. Uh, in fact, that's probably one of the biggest challenges of the industry right now. If you have two machines and you print the same part on both machines, they, these are identical machines now, you print uh, the same part on two identical machines, you, you may not get identical parts. If you print the same part, in the same machine, twice, you may not get the same part. So there's a real need for uh, in-process controls and for uh, quality monitoring. And uh, that's coming. There are a lot of people working on that. There's a company in Santa Fe, New Mexico called, called Sigma Labs that has a system for doing that. There are other companies like Concept Laser that are building it right into their machine. And uh, there's a lot of work being done in that area, but that is definitely a, an, an issue right now. What about the cost of the product that is produced on a 3D printer versus traditional assembly lines? At this point, is it cheaper, more expensive, or what's it going to look like going forward? Well, right now, it really depends upon the part. For example, in aerospace parts, sometimes it might actually cost more 
to make the part with a 3D printer right now with, with current technology. It might take cost more to make the part with a 3D printer than it would cost to make it by traditional means. But uh, the part might be substantially lighter, and if it's lighter, then it's what's called a buy-to-fly ratio is much lower. And uh, in the long run, it costs a whole lot less to fly that part because less fuel is needed to fly lighter parts. But also, depending on what the part is, it, it may actually be cheaper to make it today because if you have a part that's traditionally made and it takes 10 or 12 steps in 10 or 12 different machines, then, and, and they're all op, different operators who are operating those machines, you can instead make that part in one build in one machine, then it may be cheaper to do that. And in addition, technology, as I mentioned before, lends itself to making things where they're needed, which can also cut down on the, on the length of the supply chain. So rather than making things in a far-off land and then shipping them across the world, you make them closer to home and the supply chain is shorter and therefore the costs are lower. So if you look at the all-in costs, the all-in costs of absolutely every cost related to making a part, uh, in many cases it's less expensive to make them with 3D printing. But something I should add to that is that people shouldn't think of taking a part that exists today and then 3D printing it to look exactly the way it looks today. Uh, that would be very inefficient and it might actually be much more expensive. What 3D printers are good at is building a part without any design limitations. So designers traditionally have always had to design parts so that they could be built. They had to be built by existing technology. We don't have that limitation with 3D printing. So what's happening now is parts are being designed in a much more efficient way. And they use a process called topological optimization, which only puts material where you need it. So instead of building a bulk, let's say it's a bracket, a wing bracket, for example, for an aircraft, instead of building a really bulky wing bracket, traditional designs and traditional machines, you build it so you only have metal where you need it. And when you do it that way, then you also save money and it can make the part less expensive than by doing it by traditional means. And you're not compromising the quality of the product either, I take it, by putting the metal where it needs to be. Well, the, the process of topological optimization calculates where the loads are and presumably puts the material where it's needed. So the answer to your question is that it wouldn't compromise. However, the traditional parts, if you're talking about aerospace, for example, traditional parts, traditionally made parts, they've had to be qualified and they have to be safe. And so if you were to make that same part with 3D printing, well, it may be just as safe, but maybe it hasn't been qualified yet. And that could take some time. What would the footprint of a factory look like that is engaged in 3D printing as opposed to, to, to uh, today's traditional assembly line? Larger, smaller? Just what would that look like exactly? Well, today's machines lend themselves to being in smaller factories where maybe you have one 3D printer of one type and one 3D printer of another type, or maybe you have a whole room full of the same type of 3D printer and, and you could have a mix. You might also have a traditional machine shop where... They have some 3D printers on the floor that are there to uh, supplement their, their manufacturing methods. But in the long term, I think what you're going to see is, well, something that John Murray, he's the president CEO of uh, Concept Laser, he calls the factory of the future. And you'll see basically small factories, not, not huge factories like we're used to thinking of traditionally. Instead, you'll see much smaller factories, which will be outfitted with 3D printers and robotics, and the robots comp combined with the 3D printers will move the parts around the factories. And uh, there may not be a lot of people working there. Of course, there will be people involved in servicing the machines and, and developing the machines and software and that sort of thing and the materials. 
But the, the factory itself might not have a whole lot of people, but it won't be as big as we're used to thinking of. Well, this is the question that I think occurs to most people in the general public when they hear about this, and that is the number of people and the impact on employment levels and plants. Robotics obviously already is taking us in that direction. Would 3D printing take us even further in the direction of fewer people in the workplace in a a factory setting? Well, I think so, but I don't necessarily think that's a negative. Uh, I believe that the net will be a, a, a job's gain overall. Because somebody has to design the 3D printers. Somebody has to build them. Someone has to design the robots and build the robots. People have to service them. There's a lot of software involved. So there's software designers. This is really like a software designer's candy shop. It's a, it's a place where all kinds of software that's never been written yet can be written. And so I think that the, the overall gains, there will be overall gains, I believe, in, in jobs. But the, the analogy that I always make is to the horse. When the horse was the major form of transportation in the world, we had all kinds of horse-related jobs. And when the automobile came along, all of those jobs were lost. But think of all the jobs that were created by the automobile that no one could have even conceived of when the horse was the major form of transportation. I think the same thing will happen here. A lot of jobs that we can conceive of or that we know of now They may be lost, but a lot of new types of jobs will be created that we can't even see them yet because it's still a a, a technology that's being adopted. Although I will say that there are already a lot of startups out there that that are trying to take advantage of this technology. But you do believe that 3D printing will lead to more near-sourcing of production? Do you? Well, that's that's one of its strengths. really most efficient when you uh, use it to make parts or products closer to where they're needed. And you're able to do that because there's less labor involved. I mean, we can't really do that now. I mean, it, it used to be a long time ago. You know, we, we used to have smaller factories spread out all over this country and in other countries as well. Then factories got bigger and bigger to take, care, take advantage of uh, economies of scale and, uh, and other efficiencies. And we stopped thinking of small factories. We started thinking of big factories. But 3D printing really lends itself to being in small factories and we already have that, really. Uh, there are the, the, the factories in the 3D printing industry are often called service bureaus, and I call them fabricators. And there are already hundreds of these around the United States. So it's not as if this is something that may happen. It's something that is already happening, and it's been happening for quite some time. Are there any major categories of products or industries that you think would not be appropriate for the application of 3D printing? Sometimes I think about that, and every time I think about an industry that maybe it wouldn't be, I think, well, you know, never say never. It's always possible, I suppose. One area that I thought for a while might not be appropriate would be pharmaceuticals, for example, because there are so many controls involved. You have to make sure that there isn't misuse of them, and they have to be safe and all that. But there are companies out there now that are working on the 3D printing of pharmaceuticals, and what that will be for, it will be used for customization of pharmaceuticals. I mean, there's, there's really, right now, pharmaceuticals are kind of already made with an additive me- method, meaning that you, you know, you, you add material until you have a, a pill or a capsule or something, which is, which is a type of additive manufacturing. But it will be used, I think, more for uh, the customization of not only of pharmaceuticals, but of the delivery mechanisms for, for pharmaceuticals. Maybe there are areas where it, it wouldn't be used, maybe, so, maybe more in uh, food, food and drink, for example. They're already additive in a way, so they might not lend themselves to the type of 3D printing that we're talking about now. And do you see the parallel development of consumer machines, too? Do you think that's going to be a really strong trend in 3D printing? 
Well, there already is a strong trend in the development of consumer-grade machines. And in, in the industry, a consumer-grade machine is viewed as, as a machine that costs less than $5,000. And an industrial machine is viewed as a machine that costs more than $5,000. So on that consumer side, over the past maybe four years or so, there's just been an explosion in the number of companies that are making these consumer-grade machines. And, and most of them don't cost anywhere near $5,000. They cost mostly in the range of... 500 to $2,500, and they're probably about oh, over 300, maybe over 350, maybe even more companies around the world, all over the world, that are making consumer-level machines. And some of those machines are very basic, and some of them are more sophisticated. There are companies, that, some companies that are focusing on making consumer versions or scaled down versions, less expensive versions of some of the really expensive industrial machines. And so there's a, there's a lot of growth there. And I think what's going to happen is that some of the innovators on the consumer side who are trying to make less expensive versions of the professional machines, uh, some of that technology is going to trickle up to the industrial side. And Eventually, we'll start to see the technology on the industrial side and the, and the consumer side start to start to come together, and and prices will come down with that. So, uh, I think we'll start to see a merger of that along the way. But right now, we have we have a lot of growth on the consumer side. Now, I think a lot of those consumer machines are being used for design and prototyping in industry. There are not as many machines being bought for the home right now as everyone might like because, well, it's the, it's the design software, really. It, it's, it's not easy enough yet for the average person to either design something or to download a design and then print it. Uh, but that's getting easier and easier. So we'll, we'll start to see more and more machines in the home as well. Yeah, I wonder, though, about the definition sometimes of 3D printing. Some of the initial consumer models look to be little more than just updates of injection molding devices. Um, you know, they, you just create these single things that don't look like they really fit the definition of what we're talking about here. So there's a very, you know, kind of basic model there that may or may not actually be 3D printing. Right? Well, and I think that's part of the reason why the consumer machines haven't really caught on among consumers. It's because some people wonder, well, you know, a lot of people, adults mostly ask me, if I had a, a 3D printer, what would I do with it? Now, kids don't have that problem. Kids don't ask what to do with it. They know what to do with it. And I think kids are going to be a major driver for the adoption of 3D printers in the home. There are already a lot of 3D printers in schools, but eventually I think there'll be one in every classroom. They'll be used to not only to teach about 3D printing, but they'll be used to teach history and mathematics and art. So they'll be having them in the schools. They might have homework with them. I think kids are, will demand them, and parents also might want kids to have them so that they can learn the technology and also use the technology to, to learn other things. Like I mentioned, like STEM education, is, yeah. it's, it's a great tool for teaching STEM education. Now, you're an attorney with a specialty in intellectual property, correct? Right, that's right. What are the implications for IP protection? Because it seems like you could make knockoffs uh, very easily of the 3D printing machine and not be able to tell the difference between the original and the copy. Well, that's right. I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. The analogy that I make and a lot of other people make is to, uh, to the music industry. When it became as easy to share music digitally over the Internet, we started to see a lot of people downloading music. It started to put a lot of pressure on the 
music industry, and that music that industry was regulated by copyrights. Copyrights were the type of intellectual property that were used to keep people from copying music. But they started to prove to be ineffective because it was so easy to download music, and uh, even though people who did so might have been infringing a copyright, they did it anyway. The same thing can happen, I think will happen, with 3D printing, but it won't be limited to music, and it won't be limited to copyrights. It'll be, it can be virtually any kind of a product, and it can be any type of intellectual property, whether it's a copyright or a patent or a trademark. And you raise another very interesting point, is, and that is that how, how would you know after time, once the machines get to be really good, and once a machine that you either have at home or that small company has down the block from you, once those machines are really good and they can make a part or product that is identical to the original, how will you know? How will you know that product is is genuine? And and I've I've written on this topic and I actually have a chapter in my book about it. And that chapter asks, what does the word genuine even mean? What does it even mean in a world where where you and I are 3D printing things? I mean, you you might make a product that it's from an official blueprint. So does that make it genuine? It wasn't made by the company. It was made by you. So I think there are a lot of questions that will be raised, and it's also a fertile ground for counterfeiting. We're already starting to see some of that, and we'll see a lot more of it as time goes on. So real quickly, just how long do we have before 3D printing becomes prevalent, do you think? I know it's going to evolve gradually, but how many years down the line do you think when we won't even be talking about it, it'll just be a given? Well, you know, there are a lot of a lot of people who debate this, and the interesting thing is a lot of people will say, well, we're not going to see a 3D printer in our home anytime soon. And I say, well, what do you mean by anytime soon? And once you start drilling down on what, what time frame experts in the industry are talking about, there's not that much disagreement. I personally think that we will have a 3D printer in most homes in about 10 years' time, by about 2025. And if you talk to other people, they might say, uh, well, no time soon. And then and you say, well, what do you mean by that? And they say, well, within five years. And I say, okay, well, how about within 10 years? Well, yeah, within 10 years, maybe we will. So now, and, and if I'm wrong by five years, if I'm wrong by 10 years, still, that's not very much time. Time really flies. But it's not going to be a case where everyone has a printer that can make anything. I think that the guy with the best lawnmower is going to be the guy with the best 3D printer. If you live in an apartment, you might have a smaller machine that maybe it's a, what I call a purpose-built machine. It can make things that you need. Maybe it's kitchen utensils. There's a company out there called Mink that makes a women's makeup printer. Maybe it, maybe it makes jewelry. If you live in other places, you might have other types of machines. If you're somebody who is a, a woodworker like I am, then you might have several different machines that do different things. So I think within 10 years' time, most people will have them, but they may, may be very different from, from home to home. Well, listen, John Hornick, I want to thank you so much for joining us. The book is 3D Printing Will Rock the World. We will link to it in the show notes as to where our listeners can get a copy. Uh, but I want to thank you, John, so much for being with us and talking to us about this uh, topic. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always a delight to talk about this topic. That was my conversation with attorney John Hornick discussing his new book on the 3D printing revolution. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, 
watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.